What a, a great song and what an incredibly appropriate song to begin uh, as we start our, our series covering the Old Testament, a series we've entitled The Promise of the Gospel, Seeing Christ in, in All of Scripture. And I, I hope this is an encouraging series to you as, as we try to do that, as we try to see how we encounter Christ throughout Scripture. I encourage you to turn to Genesis 3, and as you turn there, uh, just a reminder that uh, in October we're having our baptismal service, and if you've not been baptized, we encourage you to be obedient to the Lord and, and, and uh, participate in that service on October the 6th. And as I mentioned earlier, it's going to mean this service looks a little bit different, and so be prepared for that as we uh, are all kind of doing one worship service together. First and second service will be combined, and we'll be doing a baptism uh, the first uh, during the first service hour, and if you haven't been baptized, and or you know a family member who is uh, at our church that would desire to be baptized, I encourage you to to, uh, to to participate in that. Genesis chapter three, and we're going to read verses seven through twenty-one together this morning. And so, if you would stand in honor of God as we read His Word, and in Genesis chapter three, in the first six verses, we've we've seen the the fall the deception of the woman, the sin of the man, and then right after they've eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we read this in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, on, and, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word 
this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel, the good news of Jesus, a gospel that was promised. And give us the ability to understand it, and to apply it, and to cling to you only for our salvation. Give us your grace as we look at your word together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On Friday evening, my family and I were reading from the book of Nehemiah. It's the the book that we're reading together as a family. And Nehemiah has some amazing stories in it. There's some great chapters. One of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture is Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, a great throng gets together and they, they demand that Ezra preach, that he come and he bring the book. And that's like every pastor's dream, you know, that people would you know, show up outside my house. Bring the book, Daniel. It's Sunday. We want to hear you preach. Think about it. You're just Talk amongst yourselves. It's an idea. Brainstorm. Right, so Nehemiah chapter 8, exciting chapter, right? Well, Nehemiah chapter 8 is not the chapter we read on Friday night. We read the chapter right before Nehemiah 8, which is Nehemiah 7. Nehemiah 7 is one of those chapters in Scripture. You know the chapters I'm talking about. The chapters that sometimes you come to in Scripture and you read and you're not quite sure what to do with it. It had a lot of names that we didn't know how to pronounce, a lot of numbers that we weren't quite sure what they meant, and it was 73 verses long. You know? So it's my, my children trying to read these names and, 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 and understand what they meant. And, and as a dad, I'm thinking, okay, how, how do we apply Nehemiah chapter 7 in the lives of our, our children? And, and maybe if you've ever spent time reading through the Old Testament, and if you're a believer, you should have been doing that. And you've come at times to chapters or to sections of Scripture, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) Okay, there's a bunch of names and a bunch of numbers, or there's a bunch of rules, and I I got nothing. I, I have no idea how this is relevant. Maybe it's not relevant. But think about what God says about the Old Testament. Remember, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, just finished that up last week, and in Luke 24, we see that Jesus, as he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, points to Moses and, and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, all of Scripture, and shows how, how it describes him. He, he opens the minds of the disciples to comprehend all of Scripture and, and, and see how all of Scripture has pointed to him. In Romans chapter 15, what does Paul say? In verse 4 he says that the things that were written of old were written for our instruction that, that through, the, through our, our, our continued uh, efforts and, and, our, and the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. In other words, this, this Old Testament, the thing we call the Old Testament, wasn't written just for those who received it at first, but it was also written for our benefit, that, that as we read Scripture, we could have hope that it would affect us presently. 
Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, fully equipped, adequate for every good work. Hebrews 4.12, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is living, it's active. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, he says, and he goes on to describe the way that it, it pierces into our very soul. So I struggle to see the relevance of portions of the Old Testament sometimes. God says all Scripture is relevant. Who's right? That's a rhetorical question, okay? It's God. And what I want to do in this series as we talk about the the promise of the gospel in in the Old Testament, and today begin looking at the first gospel, what I want us to do over this series is, is, is it's kind of twofold, Firstly, I hope that as we talk through the Old Testament, and we're going to be spending some time looking at at big overarching themes, big sections of Scripture, I I hope that you can come to the Old Testament that consumes over 75% of the Bible, by the way, that you can come to, to any page, any book of the Bible, and say, okay, I may have some struggles here, but, but I know how this fits into the overarching story of Scripture. I want that to be something that takes place. That you understand how, how every story, every character, every page of Scripture, every chapter fits into this, this overarching story of God's redemption. In other words, when you come to the story of, of Abraham or, or Noah or, or David, you're not just seeing it as a, a character study, but you're seeing how their story fits into God's overarching plan of redemption, of restoring relationship with fallen humanity. So, so that's one goal that I have for our time together. And then I also hope that as you see the big picture, the narrative of Scripture, that you gain an understanding of who Jesus is. That you would see who Jesus is as you understand more about the Old Testament. You would see his, his work. You'd see his person. You'd see the good news that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ described on every page. Now, as I've been talking with some of you about this sermon series, you've asked a very natural question. You've said, okay, Daniel, I know you're talking about how we we encounter Christ in some way throughout the Old Testament everywhere. How do we do that? How do we find Jesus Christ in all of Scripture? Is it like a a Where's Waldo book? You know, you have this Where's Waldo book, and there's all these different pictures on it, and there's like a little Waldo coming out from behind a line waving at you or something. I mean, is, is it like that? Is, are there all these themes in, in Scripture in the Old Testament, and, and among all those themes, somewhere there you find Jesus, like there he is with David, and he's kind of peeking out behind a lamb waving at you. Is that how you find Jesus in Scripture? No, no, it's different than that. Jesus is the dominant theme of all of Scripture. And let me just give you a couple examples of how we find Jesus in all of Scripture. And, and I think this is going to help you as we go through this series over the next 10 weeks or so that, that helps you see 
how we're finding Jesus in all these different passages that we look at. Sometimes we actually see the person of Jesus Christ at work in the Old Testament. We see that that is the second member of the Trinity. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we know that Jesus is active in the process of creating. We see uh, God talk about, let us do this. And so there's this, this plural. We see the Trinity, and we know Jesus is at work creating. And so sometimes we see actually the person of Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. I, I believe we see some, some pictures of Jesus as he, I think we see actually Jesus as he leads the Israelites, or as he encounters people, Old Testament saints. Sometimes we see the angel of the Lord. I think that's actually Jesus at, at portions of Scripture. And so we find Jesus himself on these pages. Sometimes we encounter promises of Jesus. We see that here in Genesis 3. Whenever God is talking to David, he he promises him a descendant who's going to to reign. That's Jesus. He talks to Moses. He says there's a, a coming prophet, and that's Jesus. The prophets describe a deliverer. They describe a time whenever God's promises to Israel are going to be fulfilled, and those promises are going to be fulfilled through a person that's Jesus. We encounter him in that way in the Old Testament. Sometimes we come to the Old Testament and we see a a picture of Jesus, and and the New Testament kind of describes some of these pictures. So, for example, we see this this bronze serpent that's raised up in the wilderness as the, the people of Israel are are, are bitten by snakes and, and are dying. There's this, this bronze serpent that's raised up, and that's, that's a picture of Jesus. The Old Testament reveals the sea in the New Testament. And just as the people are able to look to this bronze serpent as it's raised up and be delivered and saved, we can look to Jesus who is raised up and, and be saved from our sins. And so there's those, those pictures. And then there's, sometimes there's these, these big themes that are introduced in the Old Testament. So, for example, the sacrificial system, it's, it's introduced. In Exodus 12, we encounter the Passover lamb. And, and then this, this theme of sacrifice goes throughout the, the Old Testament. And, and it's fulfilled and, and culminates in the person of Jesus. And we see that this, this entire sacrificial system was a picture the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there are a myriad of ways to encounter Jesus in the pages of Scripture, and we're going to be talking through those as we we go through our our time together in this 10-week or so series. (laughs) Now, uh, let's let's go ahead and let's begin the series by, by looking, firstly, at what we call the first gospel. And if you'll notice in your notes, I've, I've kind of changed up the order a little bit. I apologize for that. I was wrestling all week with how to do it, and I realized last night I did it wrong in the bulletin. So I apologize for that. We're going to begin with, uh, by talking about the first gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. And then we're going to take what we see in Genesis 3, 7 through 21, and we're going to go big. We're going to look at how it fits into Genesis 1 through 11. Okay, and we'll get to that in a minute. But let's begin by talking about the first gospel. What are some things that we encounter in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 21, that are gospel truths, that are truths about the person of Jesus and his work in our lives. What are some gospel truths? Here's the first. The first gospel truth that we encounter is that I cannot cover my sins, but I will try to anyway. The first gospel truth that we encounter is that I cannot, on my own, deal with my sin, but I try to anyway. Go ahead and look at the text with me if you would. Remember, sin has entered into the world. 
God in Genesis chapter 2 has, has told the man in verse 17, don't eat of the tree of the garden, or eat, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And, and it means not just Adam, and I don't know how much of this Adam understands, but, but as Adam eats, God says, sin is going to enter not just you and, and cause death, but there's going to be this, this cosmic significance to that act. Sin will enter the world through you if you do this. Adam, as our representative, sins, and therefore we all sin. Genesis describes this. The book of Romans describes it as well. Romans chapter 5. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. That's verse 12 of Romans 5. Uh, 518 says, one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. Okay? You say, well, that, that's very unfair. Well, the good news is that just as Adam's sin led to death for all, the righteousness of one man leads to righteousness and life for all. But we'll talk about that more as we go through. But what I want you to see here is, is uh, in Genesis 3, sin enters the world through Adam's sin, through the sin of one man. And what happens next? Verse 7 describes the effects of Adam's sin. The eyes of both, that's Adam and Eve, were opened. And they knew that they were naked. You say, well, wait, didn't, you know, were they not very smart? Did they not know they were naked? No, there, there's something else that's taken place here. As Adam and Eve become aware of good and evil, there's an awareness that, that sin's effect has had a, a very traumatic effect on the world around them. They recognize that the world around them is not the same, and there's something wrong with them now. And in an attempt to hide their shame, it says in verse 7, there's this, this picture that's kind of, it's, it's tragic, but it's also somewhat comedic. It's, it's somewhat humorous in a tragic way. It says they sewed fig leaves together. It's like this, this elementary craft project or something. They, they said, well, we're naked. Let's deal with it. And so they, they take some fig leaves and look, now we're covered. They make themselves loincloths or little, little clothing to cover discrete areas. It's pathetic. They hear, hear the sound of God. They hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. We got our loincloths, a fig leaves, and we're hiding the trees. I want you to think about this with me here. How, how ridiculous this is. God is a sovereign God who's created Adam. Adam and God have been in perfect relationship since his creation. God has told Adam what would happen if he sinned, and now Adam has sinned. And at this point, I believe he's not even aware of the fullness of, of the ramifications of his actions. And, and what should Adam have done at this point? At this point, when Adam realizes that he's sinned, and, and everything begins to, to come into focus for him, what he should have done is run to God. 
and throw himself before God and say, God, this is what I have done, and exactly what, what you told me not to is what I have done, and, and I don't know what to do. There's a cosmic significance to Adam's sin that he's not even fully aware of yet. He just recognizes that things are not as they ought to be. He's got nothing, and so he just hides himself. He tries to deal with his sin on his own. It's the first sin and the first cover-up. The first attempt to deal with sin on our own. I was reading an article this last week about a, a young man named Chris McCandless, and maybe you've heard the story of Chris McCandless, a very tragic story of a 22-year-old who passed away in 1992. This article that I was reading was talking about how they've discovered some new things about how Chris McCandless died. The, the story, if you've never heard it, is this. It was, just, it was uh, in a book called Into the Wild, 1996, was published and kind of described Chris McCandless's story. Uh, Chris graduated in 1990 and basically divested himself of all his, his earthly resources except just for a few things and made a slow track from the East Coast to Alaska. In the spring of 1992, he found himself in Alaska and he began walking down this snow-covered path with a rifle, a, a knapsack with a couple things in it like rice and, and, and a few books and a journal and as he walked on this path, he encountered various people who tried to help him, who tried to advise him that what he was doing was foolish. He didn't have the, the tools that were necessary to, in, to, to, to do this uh, survival trip on his own, but he didn't listen to them. He found an old abandoned bus and made that kind of his camp and lived there from uh, spring of 1992 in, until August. In September, some hunters found this old abandoned bus and they walked up to the bus, and outside the bus was this note. It said, attention, possible visitors, SOS, I need your help. I'm injured. I'm near death. I'm, I'm too weak to hike out of here. I, I'm all alone. This is not a joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I'm out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you, Chris McCandless. As the hunters read the note, they walked into this, this bus, and, and there was the, the young man who had, who had starved to death. As people heard the story and they, they reacted to it, and what, what they found was that, that he had eaten some potato seeds that, that rendered him weak and poisoned him, and his body didn't have enough, enough uh, left to, to really be able to resist the poison of these seeds, and it made him unable to even move and, and gather food, and so he slowly starved to death. As people heard that story, people reacted in different ways. Some were very unsympathetic. I mean, this was a guy who, who, who shunned the help that others offered him. He was very close to a major highway. And they're like, you know, at some point, as you realize, he was in over his head. He could have just walked a little ways this highway and received aid there. But here's the parallel that I want you to see between ourselves and this young man, Chris. So often... We live in isolation. And we reject the resources that God has provided to deal with sin. And we say, no, I think I'm going to do this on my own. And we slowly, spiritually waste away. I 
how are you trying to deal with sin on your own? Maybe there's, there's some, some struggles that are, that are going on in your life and, 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 and you're trying to, to somehow put some fig leaves in place to take care of it. And, and there's so many different ways that, that I do this and you do this. You know, we, we're struggling with our, our language and so we make a little swear jar and we put money in it. We think, okay, if I, if I force myself to put money in this jar, it'll force me to, to change my habits and it'll make me a, a person who, who talks more gracefully. Or we, we have a struggle with uh, some sort of annoying habit, and so we put a little rubber band around our wrist. And we say, I'm going to flick myself with this rubber band every time I, I eat a cookie or something like that. Or, or we, we think, uh, I'm going to create these, these rules that, that um, well, I'll just tell you this. Last night, I, um, I, I responded very poorly to one of my, my children. And as I dealt with the aftermath of that, of just saying, you know, asking this child to forgive me for not responding graciously whenever I felt like she was misbehaving, and I, you know, I, um, I, I, I walked away from that, that conversation just, just ridden, I'll just be transparent, just with guilt. I just felt so guilty. And I said these words to myself, I promise I will never do that again. That's completely useless <laughs> in and of itself, by myself. And so often, in our church, in our religious efforts, in our in all sorts of things, you know, we, we do all sorts of things to try to cover up the sin, to kind of cover up the, the, the things that we're struggling with, and it's, in and of itself, it's completely ineffective. That's the gospel truth that we encounter here in Genesis 3, and that we encounter throughout Scripture, I can't deal with my own sin. What happens next? Here's the second gospel truth I want you to see. The second gospel truth that I want you to see here in Genesis chapter 3 is that God promises me a deliverer who can save me from sin's curse. We won't, we're doing an overview here, and, and, and we're, so we're not going to be able to cover every verse to, to the fullness that I, that I like, but, but notice that, that God confronts the man, he confronts the woman, he he. he Uh, confronts them. He asks these questions to cause them to have to confess what's taken place, and then he begins to to deal with them. And uh, By the way, notice what the man says in verse 10. He says, I I heard the sound of you. I was was ashamed. And then God says, well, who told you? And then the man continues this process of of not taking responsibility. Verse 12, well, the woman whom, uh, you know, you gave her to me, God, uh, she suggested this, and I did it. So, you guys kind of conspired against me, huh? Uh, and the woman blame shifts, and, and they're not really dealing with the reality of their sin. And, and then the Lord begins this, this process of, of decreeing judgment. He begins with the serpent. You've done this, verse 14, and you're cursed above all the livestock. And then we come to verse 15, and I want you to see in verse 15, I believe we encounter what's, what's called the proto-euangelion, the, the first gospel. Some of God's first words as he deals with sins are, are gospel truths. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, that is a very important word, and her offspring, a crucial word, he, a specific offspring, shall bruise your head, shall crush you, and you shall bruise his heel. 
in his first words of judgment, we see God describing the gospel. Say, what do you mean? He is talking about an offspring, a descendant of the woman, who is going to permanently deal with this problem of the curse, this problem of the effects of sin. You say, Daniel, are you sure about that? I wanted to tell you a couple things that happened throughout the rest of the book of Genesis and the Old Testament that I, th- I think show you that, that, yeah, this is what it's talking about. First of all, this word offspring that occurs here in verse 15, know this, it occurs about 60 more times throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. Over and over again, this word that's translated here, offspring, occurs and occurs and occurs and occurs. In other words, the writer of Genesis thinks this is a big deal. The outline for the book of Genesis, you see this word descendants. This is the genealogy, or the, 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 the story of the descendants of, of this person and that person. In other words, throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, the writer of Genesis and throughout the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, the writers are, are trying to trace this theme of here's this woman and, 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 and there's this promised seed. Now, now where's this going to go, this promised descendant? Who is it going to be and how is he going to deal with the curse? And, and here in Genesis chapter 14, you see a or Genesis chapter 3, you see this tension that, that man has fallen and, and humanity is tainted by sin, and, and yet at the same time there's going to be a, a human descendant who can deal with the curse, and yet at the same time only God can deliver. And so there's this tension that takes place from the first proclamation of the gospel. In fact, turn over with me to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, we encounter one of those chapters. You know, you begin reading through the Bible. So I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, it's all kind of in- intriguing. Then you get to Genesis 5, and you're like, oh, skip, quick, 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 quick. I get it, I get it. I, I was, uh, in-, in college, there was a-, a, I went to a secular college, but uh, there was a class on the Bible as literature, and so I took this class, and one of the class field trips, I wasn't able to go, but but uh, a lot of the class was able to go on this. They they went, and they heard someone give like a, a um, dramatic, memorized recitation of Genesis 1 through 11. They, they, they recited the whole thing from memory. And they said that when, they came, when he came to Genesis chapter 5, they, they thought it was going to be kind of boring. They'd read through it and they're like, ah. But they said it was amazing to hear it read. Because each time you have a, a person described, it says how long they live. Then they had a, a child, a, a son, and that son is that, that descendant that we're tracing. Then how long they lived after that. And it says, and then everyone ends with this, this expression, and he died. So-and-so lived, had a child, and he died. Da-da-da, live, 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 and he died. Live, died, 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 died. What's happening? It's a curse. It's the curse and you sense, as you go through Genesis 5, this expectation, is this going to be the deliverer? Died. Is this going to be the deliverer? Died. You come to the very end of the chapter of Genesis chapter 5, and by the way, if you are not reading your Bible carefully, you're going to miss some of these things. Look at what happens in verse 28 of Genesis 5. There's this guy Lamech. He lived for 182 years. He fathered a son, and he named him Noah. And that name Noah it has the same sound as the word for rest, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief 
or rest from our work and the painful toil of our hands. What is he saying? He's saying, okay, we've been waiting for the descendant. We've been waiting for the offspring. Now maybe this one will give us rest, will give us relief from the curse. Is this going to be the one? As you read through Genesis 5, do you see this, this yearning for the deliverer? And this wondering, where is God? Where is this, this promised one? This past week, uh, one of our uh, children was, was struggling with obedience. Here, here's another great Daniel story. Uh, one of our children was struggling with, with, obedience, with disobedience, and we had to deal with it, and, and, but there was something else going on at the time. And so I, I, I told this child, hey, go to the dining room. Uh, we'll be right there, okay? And then Whitney started telling me something, and I, I'm not even going to tell you how much time went by, but it was a while. <laughs> and I, and Whitney and I finished our conversation, and something else happens. I'm like, hey, um, where's, oh, right. So I, I go back into the dining room. Um, I hope you've learned your lesson. Dad's a moron, okay? <laughs> you know, so I, you know, I had to ask for forgiveness there, too. Uh, you know, is, is God like that? He's like, hey, I promise that we are going to send you a deliverer, the sin of the woman. And then just forgets about it? Oh, right, the deliverer. I was supposed to send somebody. No, it's not like that. But, but, but catch this. As you go throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's this, there's this waiting. There's this expectation. There's this, this promised deliverer. Where is he going to be? And, and, it's, and it's especially strong here in Genesis. In fact, something kind of interesting. If you don't understand this idea of, of seed, descendant, promised one, you're going to miss the importance of, of some of these stories. In other words, these stories aren't just about Jacob. They're not just about Abraham. They're not just about Esau. As you go through, you see this, this, this yearning for the descendant. And, you know, um, Rebecca, whenever in Genesis 24, she's blessed and said, Oh, sister, may, may you become thousands of 10,000. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Uh, Abraham is you, you see the struggle with Abraham and God, and, and, and God saying, look, it's, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, and, and the offspring, the one who comes after you, it's, it's, it's so clear throughout Scripture, throughout Genesis. And if you're not seeing that, you're just seeing these as little character studies, then you're missing the redemptive point, the, the story of salvation that is, that is oozing out of every page here. In fact, uh, you go through Genesis, you come to Genesis chapter 37, for example, and you encounter this guy, Joseph. And throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, you're dealing with Joseph. And our temptation might be to say, ah, what a cool story about Joseph. And I need to be like Joseph and have dreams or something, right? And you read through Genesis, and then you come to chapter 38 in the middle of the story of Joseph. And you're like, wait a minute. Someone didn't get this right because Genesis chapter 38 is about Judah and his offspring and this his daughter-in-law Tamar and some you know crazy stuff that happens there. That 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 story's out of place. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because it's showing how God preserved the line. He preserved his descendants. Joseph isn't a story about this cool guy named Joseph. It's a story about God preserving the descendant. God preserving the line so he could provide us with the deliverer. 
God promises me a deliverer who can save me from sin's curse. That's the gospel. In fact, go back to Genesis chapter 3 if you're not already still there. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have that gospel proclaimed in verse 15. And then in verses 16 through 19, let, let me suggest this to you. Yes, that's the curse, but even in the curse, you see the gospel. The woman is told that there'll be pain in childbearing. She's told that this relationship with her husband is now going to be damaged. The, the husband is told that work is, is going to no longer be the, the joy that it was before, but the, the work itself is going to be cursed. And you say, well, my, what, what tough punishment. Yes and no. Imagine a world in which you were separated from God but felt no effects of the curse. The curse is this, this thing, and the, the reality of evil is this thing that causes people to recognize that their relationship with God is not the way it is supposed to be. If you and I were able to go through life and say, everything's great, everything's fine, and then suddenly die and have no realization that things are off, that things are wrong, that my relationship with God is not the way it ought to be, what a terrible place that would be. And we died, and we died, and we died, and we never realized anything was wrong. The curse is a poignant reminder that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. The reality that there's, there's suffering, that our bodies are frail, is a constant reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Last week, Noah and I, my, my son Noah and I were standing over here, we were talking to some people, and, and Noah, he's, he's eight years old, and and we're done talking. He goes, all right. And so he just jumps off the stage, you know. And, and uh, there's a bunch of adults around. He's got a little eight-year-old body, jumps off the stage, no problem. But all the rest of us that are adults go, oh, you know, like we kind of rub our knees just thinking about jumping off a stage like that, you know. We've seen the effects of the fall literally, right? Literal falls. You struggle with the effects of the fall in your own life. Some of us are going through family struggles right now. There are things going on in the lives of, of, our, of our kids that are, are just, they're, they're, they're terrible. Some of us are in relationships with, with, uh, in our, with our spouse that are, that are just, it, it's hellish. We're in conflict with, with people at work, and it's, it just shows us the reality of the fall. And, it, and, and we're trying to take things like, like, and cover them with, with fig leaves and, and deal with it. Some of you are struggling with, with your sexuality, with, with how God has designed you, and, and you're thinking, you know, I want to live my life in, in this way, and, and yet I know what God says here, and, and you're, you're taking fig leaves, and you're trying to, to deal with sin on your own, and it's not working. God promises a deliverer. And we know that that deliverer, we now have, have more revelation that that deliverer is Jesus Christ, that he's the one that's going to, to die as, as God, as man, die in our place on the cross, take the penalty for our sin, take sin's curse upon himself, and offer us salvation. God promises me a deliverer who can save me from sin's curse, and we know that that deliverer is the person, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the third truth that I want us to see as we look at Genesis 3 in the gospel here, the third truth is that God can cover my sins and will do so abundantly. 
we began in, in verses 7 and 8, in verse 7 and 8, where the, the, the couple, Adam and Eve, try to cover themselves with some fig leaves. We come now to verses 20 and 21, and in verse 21, what happens? The Lord God, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. There's a picture here of the type of bruising that the offspring is going to receive. There's a picture here of the necessity of the shedding of blood to deal with the effects of sin. With sin. Here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we encounter the first death in Scripture. And it's a death that is occurring to clothe the man and the, his wife. And it's a death that is a picture of the death that Christ will die for you and for me. Only God can deal with sin, and he does so abundantly. All right, now let's take Genesis chapter 3, and let's go big. Let's look at the, a bigger section of Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11. We're going to see here God's great plan of redemption, God's grand plan of redemption here in Genesis 1 through 11 as we think about Genesis 3. And, and I want us to each week kind of go big and think about God's big story of redemption. You know, uh, at nights, whenever I'm, I'm going to bed, I, I think I've mentioned this before, I like to read and fall asleep reading, and I, I like to read my, my Kindle or something, and uh, as, as I fall asleep at, at night, you know, the, the Kindle kind of begins to, to fall, and the good news is I'm, I'm somehow, I don't know, like half-conscious, whatever, but the, the Kindle never falls on me. The, the bad news is it falls on Whitney. Um, you know, and, and my argument is it, it means that I love her because I want to be so close to her while I fall asleep. Her argument is that she's repeatedly woken up by a falling Kindle, which is also a valid point, I believe. But um, so one problem with that is that I'm abusing my wife. Uh, the other problem with falling asleep is that sometimes you, you, you wake up and you have no idea what you've been reading, and so you're reading a paragraph that makes absolutely no sense, and that's how we approach Scripture sometimes as well. We're, we're reading something without context. It makes no sense. So each week I want us to see the, the big picture. So what do we see in Genesis 1 through 11? Well, we see first of all in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God as a sovereign creator. He creates everything, and he creates it good. Then in Genesis chapter 3, as we've seen, there's, there's sin entering the world, and as sin enters the world, God's perfect creation is, is marred, and, and, and there's a cosmic reach to Adam's sin, and the sin has to be dealt with, and from the very first moments after sin, God reveals that his plan is to provide a redeemer. In Genesis chapter 4, we see that redeemer promised is, is threatened as, as the two sons, the two offspring of, of, of Eve uh, struggle and, and one kills the other and so now you have one who's who's died and the other who's who's, who's evil and and then we see another son Seth born and we, we see this continued process of of following the descendants of Eve through chapter five and then you come to Genesis chapters six through nine and Genesis chapters six through nine are not just about 
this guy Moses and what a good builder he is and how cute the animals are and, and maybe we should decorate our, our kids' nurseries with cute little animals from Noah's Ark because it's all about this, this guy building a boat and going fishing and stuff. We see that it's God dealing with sin. And even as he deals with sin, he's providing salvation. Not just for Noah. What is he doing? What's on, what's on that, that ark? The descendant of, of, the, of the woman, the offspring. And the offspring is going to continue. On the ark, your salvation is being preserved. The redemption that God offers through Jesus Christ is preserved on the ark. And then we come to, to after Genesis 9, we come to Genesis 10 and 11, and we, we see continued descendants and God's redemptive plan continuing to be worked out. You and I, the gospel tells us, are completely unable to deal with sin on our own. I can't deal with, with the smallest one of my sins. I need a redeemer. And from the very first moments after the fall, God says, I got this. I love you. And I'm going to provide that redeemer for you. Perfect God, perfect man, who will deal with sin once and for all. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It doesn't begin in the New Testament. It begins from the very first moments of God's created world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus. A gospel message that really doesn't even begin in the old, it begins from, in, from eternity past. And we worship you because of that. We rejoice because you've revealed it to us. We pray that we would live in gospel obedience. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.